We are this week looking at all of Ephesians chapter 1. So if you do have a Bible, feel free to turn to Ephesians 1 as we read together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Philippa. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so glad you're with us today. I'm very excited, as it's been mentioned a few times, to unpack Ephesians together. I think it's just one of the most incredible letters of Paul, and I'm just going to have a sip of water. So, a little bit of housekeeping before we start. I promise I won't say this every week, but I have to say it at least once, because some of you will have never seen me before. Uh, my name is Michael. I am Scottish, uh, non-American, uh, just so you don't spend the whole of uh, tonight wondering where I'm from, and I do find it difficult to stay still. I just get so excited to, to get a chance to share with you that I will be moving around a bit, so hopefully you won't find that too distracting. And I thought before we really get into Ephesians 1 tonight, we'll just do a little bit of housekeeping. What are the aims? Why are we doing this? What's the point? 
And because uh, I think it's nice that we're all on the same page together as we kind of go into this Bible study. Because a Bible study, woo, a Bible study together is a little bit different from me standing up here and preaching to you. Uh, because this is going to be quite a, a collaborative exercise. So what's the aim? We want to explore together. We want to learn together. We want to inspire each other to go deeper into Scripture. Okay? And there will be things that go unanswered. You know, Ephesians 1 you just heard it, you read it, it's dense, okay? And we've only got a certain amount of time. Uh, Charles Wesley, uh, when, he wrote, when he preached on Ephesians, he did 34 preaches uh, for a six-chapter letter. So we're not going to do 34. We've got nine weeks to get as much done as possible. Um, so there will be some things which remain unanswered. But that's okay because we're going to study together and ask questions together and explore together. Like I said, we're going to unpack scripture together. So it's not a normal preach in a sense that I'm not going to stand up here and do three points necessarily, although there will be points and there will be application. It's, we're going to journey through the sections of scripture and we're going to see what they have to tell us. We're going to pick up important themes. We're also going to be thinking about the context, uh, when the letter was written, to whom it was written, what language it was written in, what we can learn from, from the differences in translations. We're going to be doing a fair bit of reading scripture, okay? And that's good because we believe, I brought my Bible up here, not just the prophets in case my iPad dies. Um, we believe this is the continuing story of Jesus. This whole thing is an entire story. So it just makes sense for me to need to dip into other parts of scripture as we explore the story of who Jesus is, okay? Expect to potentially take notes, Okay, not because I expect you to go home and raid over your notes and, and memorize and, and then, you know, go out and teach the same thing to somebody else. Although if you want to do that, you're very welcome. It's because we're expectant that God's actually got something to say to us. When we sit down and we make time to open God's word, we know that he's going to speak to us and have something to say. And we don't want to forget that because we're prone to forget. Just look at the Israelites. Um, we're also going to take breaks. Okay, we are going to be going deep into some scripture, and that can be a bit new. Some of you may go deep in scripture all the time, but you might not do it in this kind of a context. So something will be new for you, and uh, we're going to take breaks. Okay, so just relax. If you want to stand up and go get coffee, do that. Okay, if you want to go to the loo, do that. If you've got to go pick up something from the shop before it shuts, that's fine, but I'd rather you were here. Okay, um, so... And we're also going to take breaks. We're also going to speak to each other and ask each other some questions, which will be prompted by me. And I would just ask you for uh, just, to, just to kind of lean into that. You know, it, I'm going to suggest some information, and it's up to you to decide whether you think it's of value, and you're going to explore that together as well. So, and then lastly, in this section, I just need to talk about my sources, okay? Because... It would be rude to stand up here and be like, this is all from me, and I'm a genius. Okay, so very briefly, in terms of Bibles, we're looking at NIV, ESV, NRSV, and other translations because, as I talked about, we're looking at Greek, we're looking at Hebrew, we're seeing how the words are translated differently, and that's of value to look at different places. We're looking a lot at Ephesians, and exegetical commentary by Harold W. Honer. It's regarded as the gold standard of uh, exegesis commentaries on Ephesians. If you want to get extremely detailed into Ephesians, see me after, I'll get you to write it down. Also, Ephesians Life Application Bible Commentary, Expositor's Bible Commentary, a huge array of study Bibles, lots of praying, and God's revelation. So, we're going to study Ephesians together. 
And as we do that, each week, we're going to be looking at three things. And this will be the same every week. Number one, what are the key themes of this bit we're reading? Number two, what is Paul trying to communicate? And number three, what are the sticky parts? What are the bits that make you go, huh, that's a confusing word, or is that different now to when it was then, or, oh my goodness, predestination. Okay, so the sticky parts we'll be exploring, and that sounds good, I hope. I hope that sounds good. But, like I said, there'll still be questions. And I want to frame, before we get into the scripture, and we're about to, don't worry, this is the last intro bit. I want to frame all of our Bible study through three scriptures. So if you're writing notes, write down these three scriptures. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is alive and active. Hebrews 4.12. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. And 1 Corinthians 2.12, it was so hard for me just to say one verse of this because it's such a great passage. Go just read that. 1 Corinthians 2.12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. What we have received is the spirit who is from God that we may understand. Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is alive and active. God's Spirit is living within us so that we may understand. That means that our study tonight and your study for the rest of your lives is alive and active. It never ends. It's evergreen. God has always got more to tell you, always got more to encourage you with, always got more to build you up with until we see him face to face. Can I get an amen? Yeah. So... Going back to our icebreaker, if you're here at six, there'll always be a reason to be here at six, although we'll give you a little bit of a grace period to make get your coffee. Are you a completionist? Are you a collector of things? Yes, no, maybe. Well, there's no way we're ever going to complete the book of Ephesians, okay? We're not going to have that, what was it, 96, 95, 96 football annual collected, completed. We're never going to have it completed. But that's not a reason for frustration, it's a reason for rejoicing. God always has more for us, always more to teach us. So there you go. Let's get into a little bit, shall we? So Ephesians 1, tonight we're going to look at the background of Ephesians 1 in brief. We're going to look at three sections in Ephesians 1 as well. Ephesians, the first two verses, and then the two big chunks. In your Bible, they've got different headings. Those are the chunks we're going to be looking at them in, because they've got headings like that for a reason. So what about the background of Ephesians then? Who wrote Ephesians? Name, uh, answers on a postcard. Anyone know who wrote Ephesians? Shout out if you know. Paul. Wonderful. Thank you. Gold star. Let me just pray to finish. Just kidding. Um, yes, Paul. Probably. I agree. Um, just to give you an idea, if you read any Bible commentary, it will probably say something like, mm, maybe Paul. Um, and that's okay because... Through all of history, scholarly history, up to about the mid to late 1700s, people were just like, yeah, Paul wrote Ephesians. And then after that, 
some textual analysis, people started to be like, did Paul really write Ephesians? It's a bit impersonal. It's a bit not quite like the stuff he writes. And some other people came back, and there's a big back and forth. And where it lands now is about 50% of scholars think Paul wrote it, and about 50% of scholars don't think Paul wrote it. If you'd like to see me after it for all of the details as to why, I'd love to go into that. But I don't think it's necessary. On balance, having spent about a week just on the authorship of Paul, uh, reading it, uh, authorship of Ephesians, I feel pretty strongly that Paul wrote Ephesians. And I also feel that if it didn't, most of the scholars think that it was an, a disciple of Paul within 15 years of Paul's death. So, Paul wrote Ephesians. All right, you can just write that one down. Check that off. But one of the reasons that people think Paul might not have written Ephesians is because it's a bit impersonal. It's a bit like some of Paul's epistles, letters, have really big, long introductions where he goes into great detail. And, and Paul was in Ephesus for three years nearly. So why didn't he be like, to my best bud, Bob, in Ephesians, you know, which he does with some of the other letters. Well, actually, people think, potentially, some scholars think that Ephesians was a circular letter. Okay, so it was a letter that would have been given to a variety of other churches. Um, we know that in Acts 20, 20, that's a, don't, don't say that number out too loud. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, uh, Paul actually says, when I was in Ephesians, I went to you house by house. So we know that there was multiple churches in Ephesus. So we know that when Paul would write, he would have expected the letter to be distributed among, among other churches. And also the other churches in kind of Western Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, um, the seven churches in, in the book of Revelation, those would have been churches that would have received this letter. It's a letter that went around and was read to many believers, which is kind of cool because it means it's for us, right? It's not just very specifically for one people at one time. It's relevant to all of us. And finally, a little bit of background. What's the context in Acts as we read it, the Acts of the Apostles, and, and we see Paul's missionary journeys in that book? Well, if you'd like to go home and do some homework, you can read Acts 19 to 28. But really, probably, Paul wrote this letter whilst in custody in Rome. And it's, this is a really nice point that I bring up because it, it speaks to the themes of Ephesians. Paul was... Uh, in custody in Rome. He was in prison because he was accused, and we read about this in Acts 21, Acts 21, of bringing Gentiles into the temple, which was not okay. So the, the Jewish leaders kind of brought him in front of the magistrate and got him arrested for doing that. And actually we know that Ephesus and the church in Ephesus was starting to struggle with this kind of racial and social divide between the Gentiles and the Jews, the Jews and the non-Jews. And Paul writes about this, we'll see, in chapter 2. So actually, the very reason he's in prison right now, and he's writing about in this letter, is the issue that the Ephesian church is, one of the issues the Ephesian church is facing. We'll unpack that as well. And Ephesus, just the land, you may know this beautiful city. If you get a chance to go to Turkey, they've spent about 100 years restoring ancient Ephesus, and it's the most incredible place to be. Um, one of the crowning jewels of the Roman Empire that surrounded the kind of Mediterranean Sea there. Uh, it was a port city. It was the, the quickest route to Asia Minor by land or by sea. So everything went through there. It was, uh, you know, one of the largest, it was the largest population center in Asia Minor at the time of Paul's writing. Uh, I got this good quote from a, G a Greek geographer and historian, Strabo. He says, it's the greatest emporium in the province of Asia Minor. So big old shopping district. Um, so there you go. There's a little bit of background 
on the book. Now, let's have a brain break. I promise you some brain breaks. I just spewed information at you. What's your go-to, and this is for discussion with your whoever's near you, got a couple of minutes. What's your go-to greeting? How do you say hello to people? Uh, in the street, if it's a stranger, and you absolutely, I mean, we, when I'm from Scotland, people always say hello to each other in the street, but never happens here in London. Like, hmm. But if you imagine a world in which you, that did happen, what would it be? Or your family, your spouse, your loved one, your children, does it differ? Is it always the same? What's your go-to greeting? Go. Amazing. I'm going to bring you together with what I, I asked Phil at the back, who's the rector here at St. Paul Shadwell, and he said uh, his go-to greeting is, hey, how are you doing? But he needs to change it because he realizes he doesn't always want to know the answer, uh, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Very honest of him to say that. Um, anyone else want to share a go-to greeting? How you, uh, how you say hello? I mean, you understood the assignment. I don't know why I'm explaining it again. As you want to share your greeting. Yeah. For example, I'm really putting you on the spot here. Um, for example, if I was meeting the bishop, I'd be like, very, hello, how are you? Yeah, yeah. If I was meeting some guy on the street, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As for those who couldn't hear, as said, if he was meeting the bishop, he'd say, what's up? And if he was meeting, if he was meeting someone in the street, he'd say, nice to meet you. Or something like that. It could have been the other way around. Um, Really good. Thank you all. Uh, I appreciate that. Hopefully that gave your brain a little bit of a break. Well, that's some really good greetings, but I guarantee you that none of these greetings are quite as incredible as Paul's greeting in the letter of the epistle. The letter of the epistles? The epistle to the Ephesians. Can't speak. This is great stuff. When I read letters of Paul, sometimes I just blast straight through the greeting. Like, that's just the bit he says, hello, whatever, let's get to the meaty part. But do not blast through this bit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These two words, grace and peace, are the main things we're going to look at in this first little section. Paul's greeting, he wishes the Ephesians church and to us grace, the gospel in one word, and peace, the transforming power of the gospel in one word. This introduction to Ephesians is kind of like the sense of zooming out from two words and just keeping on zooming out into eternity. Do you remember when Google Maps was a brand new thing and you could only access it on the desktop and you had to go to the browser and you'd find your house, but you could zoom out forever. I don't know if you can still do it. I've not tried. You could go to your house and you could zoom out. You'd see your street. You'd see your town. You'd see your country. You'd see the, the globe. It absolutely blew my mind. I remember it well. Ah, fond memories. This is like that, but for grace and peace. Grace and peace is Paul's introduction at the start of this letter. Grace, Jesus dying for our sins on the cross to bring us back into a relationship with our Father God. And peace, the way that our lives are transformed by that truth, is the theme of Ephesians. The first three chapters, one, two, three, are grace. Four, five, six, are peace. Not only that, but grace and peace is the theme of all scripture. Not only that, but grace and peace is the ongoing call of God in our lives. You know, we think of the great, commission, the great commandment in Matthew 22, where Jesus replies to the Pharisees, the, the, the expert in the law, 
the love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Grace and peace. These two words. The introduction. It's also the theme of the first chapter. It's the theme of the entire book. It's the theme of the entire scripture. It's the theme of our entire lives. It's the theme of God's call on our lives. That's right. That's a pretty good way of saying hello. Pretty theologically dense way of saying, sup. And just don't blast through it. Because it's incredible. And if there's one thing really that you take away from today, this whole series, whether you come back or not, it's grace and peace. It's grace and peace, this idea that grace can be the, the gospel in one word and peace can be the gospel's impact on our lives in one word. And if you're just not sure, we are going to unpack the rest of the scripture and it goes into what grace is, like I said. We can also remember and borrow Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 2, 4 to 5. It says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Honer, the guy who wrote the really involved um, commentary on exegesis, says, The grace of God that brings salvation to sinners affects peace between them and God, and that same grace enables believers to live peaceably with one another. The grace of God brings peace between us and God and us and other people. So there's your grace and your peace as well. There's an incredible little Bible project video. It's a four-minute word study on the word peace, shalom, or irene in the Greek. And it's an incredible video. I encourage you to go and watch it. It's very, very quick. I'll do a little bit of summary and drawing on a couple of other things. But really, it's not peace as an absence of conflict, as you may know. It's peace in a prosperity, in health, in sleep. Or as the Bible project unpack it in their video, this idea of completeness or wholeness. It's like a stone that has been a perfect shape with no cracks or a wall which has no uh, imperfections in it. It's used also in terms of like a really complex system that's just working perfectly. Shalom, peace. It's also, as you know or may know, the Jewish greeting, shalom, peace. But it has all of that wealth of weight behind it, completeness, wholeness, complexity in, in, in working together. And that is what Paul is wishing for us. Grace, the gospel, peace, that we as complex beings would work all together as God intends us to. So there we go. There's your opening. Not too bad. Brain break question. There's going to be lots of these. So I'm really impressed with your, with your leaning into it so far. What tongue twister do you know? And can you get through them, any of them all the way? Do you know any tongue twisters? Speak with your people around you. Impress them with your tongue twister. You know what a tongue twister is, right? Like she sells seashells by the seashore. Yeah, those kind of things. Yep. Go. Discuss. Okay, we're gonna draw, I think we're going to draw it together because a lot of you look lost. Like, what is a tongue twister and why would I want to say one? Anyone know? Does anyone know any tongue twisters? Anyone? Well, there's a nod here. I don't know your name, I'm sorry. Dan, would you recite your tongue twister for us? Try my best. Um, so this one is in German. Um, Fische Fritz, Fischt, Frische, Fische, Fische, Frische, Fische, 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 Fische,
fishermen fritz fishes fresh fishes uh, fresh fishes are fished by fishermen fritz effectively Karina marks out a 10 was that good yeah, yeah well there you go Karina's my go-to for German expertise, so very good. Anyone else for um, a tongue twister? <laughs> no one wants to follow that. A lot of people don't, don't seem to know any. I, I guess that we had, we had long, dark nights in rural Scotland, and I was uh, <laughs> all just sitting there reciting tongue twisters. Um, she sells seashells by the seashore. The shell seashells are seashells, I'm sure. She sells seashells by the seashores. I'm sure she sells seashore shells. Woo! Thank you. Thank you. My favorite one is actually about tooting, because uh, my three-year-old, nearly three-year-old, uh, we use tooting as blowing wind. Um, and it's also a, a limerick. A tutor who tooted the flute tried to teach two young tutors to toot. Said the two to the tutor, it's harder to, is it harder to toot or to tutor to tutors to toot? That's a good one. But there are lots of fun tongue twisters. Why, why would I do this to you? Um, did you know that Ephesians 1, 3 through to 14, this whole section, which in your Bibles is probably headed up something like praise for spiritual blessings in Christ or spiritual blessings in Christ, in the original Greek is one single 202-word sentence. It's a tongue twister. Why? What a great question. Let me un unpack that. Yeah, and in our Bibles, it's around 250 words for the most part, but it's mercifully broken up with grammar. Why is this huge, what we call a eulogy, as in a like an, a pronouncement of praise, and not eulogy in the funeral sense, but eulogy just in the praising sense, so long in Ephesians 1? Well, why is a good question. And lots and lots of very much cleverer people than me spent their entire careers as uh, Bible scholars trying to work out why. And the answer is, we don't really know, but maybe it's a hymn of praise. Uh, maybe it's a form of early liturgy, where people used to, you know, like we uh, said the prayer all together, the prayer of Ephesians. Maybe it was a, this form of, of saying something all together. No one's really come to a consensus. People have tried to break it up into verses and structures and strophes and refrains and all this kind of stuff. And people have had very heated debates about it across many decades and centuries. In the early 1930s and 60s, uh, up to the 30s to the 60s, the focus kind of changed onto this. Maybe it's a more, uh, from a more Jewish perspective, like the way that the, the ancient Jewish people used to write their praise canticles and things like that, and that Paul was drawing on his expertise in that because of his background, obviously, as a Jew. And then people these days even suggest that it's maybe just this massive big extillation of random praise and there's no structure because Paul's just like, God, you're awesome. And he's just spewing out all this praise. And that's good, really, because it bears mentioning, because it's interesting and, it, and you can't really study this part of the scripture without knowing that, but also it shows us that there's space for all those things. Okay, when we worship, it's good to worship with songs and structure. It's wonderful to worship together with liturgy. And it's also right to just praise from your heart. Just to give God praise. What else we, what we do know about this section is that it is an extended section of praise. It has a thematic foreshadowing for the entire letter of Ephesians. There are some really key recurring things in there as you read through it. 
And I would encourage you, one of the ideas is we do this together and then this week you go home and you just read it again, just as Ephesians 1. So look out for, as you read it again, in him and in Christ. Paul absolutely stresses the necessity of God's saving work of grace, grace and peace. It is in Christ Jesus that we are saved. Also, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all in there. Father, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, dot, 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 and sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. The entire Godhead, the trinity of who God is, the fullness of God is present in this extillation of praise, as in this announcement of praise, and is also present and necessary for us to fully experience grace. There is no grace without the fullness of God. Okay, so that's your overview. Remember we said we'd do an overview and we'd do the sticky parts. Here's the sticky parts. Ooh, sticky. Two main elephants in the room, predestination and adoption. My goodness, predestination. Okay, so here we go. Predestination is this idea that some number of people, uh, you know, are chosen by God. And that has caused a great amount of discussion over many, many centuries. And it's a difficult subject that we're not going to answer tonight. So relax. It's telling, if you know much about the Church of England, we have something called the 39 Articles, which is uh, that which, uh, you know, describes what we believe as a church, broadly speaking. And the longest one of these is Article 17, which is our predestination. Like, longest by a long way, okay? So if you ever read the 39 Articles, the longest one is the one that deals with predestination, because it's a difficult subject. But what can we know about predestination? Well, God has to choose us. Right? People don't like this idea of someone choosing or not choosing. But God has to choose us because we never choose God. Adam and Eve literally were created by God, walked in the garden, saw God face to face. You know, if you want that, you know, whatever that means metaphorically, literally, your interpretation, either way, we know that they had the deepest relationship with Creator God that any human has ever had. But after the fall, they hid from God, and God had to intercede to come back to them. Okay, They had the deepest relationship, and they still didn't come back to God on their own. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We don't seek for God. We think we do maybe sometimes, but actually God seeks us out. God comes to us. You are here tonight, not by chance. God has seeked sought you out. He has brought you to this place for a reason. Okay? God seeks us. He chooses us. And we also know that God knows us and must know who will choose, who will turn to him and who will not turn to him. We think about Psalm 139. In verse 16, it's a famous psalm all about how God knows us. Verse 16 says, For your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one came to be. God has to choose us. We know that God knows us and knows what we are going to do, whether our hearts are going to be towards him or away from him. So we know that there is a choice in this. But there are three things, and then we're moving on from predestination. 
Number one, procrastination is a choice made from known options. Lots of in instances of the word which is translated as predestined in the Bible. And I'm not going to go into all the Greek and all the, all the Hebrew right now, but a few of the examples are when Jesus chooses his 12 disciples, the same word is used. And we know that Jesus chose his disciples from a larger number of disciples and that he knew who he was choosing from. Also, when God chooses David as king and Samuel anoints him as king, he only makes that choice after Jesse brings all of David's brothers to Samuel. And he know it's a known choice. But those that are chosen and those that are not chosen, those that are not chosen are not rejected. They're not spurned. They're not thrown away. The disciples who are not chosen are not like, well, can't follow Jesus anymore. See ya. I only want these 12. Jesse doesn't disown and disinherit his other sons who are not chosen. And that choice is made by God out of personal interest. God chooses Israel because he loves them, not because he had to, okay? So that is the groundwork for our discussion, which we're not going to have now, right now, about predestination, that God has to choose us. We would never choose him, okay? We don't seek. God knows us, but Whilst there is a choice made by God, he doesn't reject that which is not chosen and he doesn't uh, spurn or hate those that he doesn't choose. I'm going to leave it there. And, uh, you know, one of the things we may do in this space going forward is explore some of these challenging issues together. Let's very briefly, before we do our next brain break question and move on to our last point, explore this idea of adoption because I think there's some really incredible things to take away that will really speak to your heart in this. So we're thinking, by the way, here about verse 5 where it says we are predestined for adoption. And these are the two sticky points to bring us back to that point. In Roman families, the father had absolute power over the members of the family, including unto life and death. A Roman patriarch, especially a wealthy one, could, if he wanted to, have his children killed, um, and he wouldn't be jailed for murder. He had full legal ownership of everything that the family had and could dispose of it as they pleased. He could sell everything and kick them out onto the street if he wanted to. And adopting children just basically never happened. Children weren't adopted in ancient Roman society. Roman elites adopted fully grown adult men. Because often they didn't have children and they would not have a next in line and they would want to secure their, their family name, their family legacy, their, all of their assets, so they would adopt a fully grown adult. And it was one of the only ways actually, a very few ways in Roman society for like upward social mobility. So being adopted from a lower class to a higher class was something that happened fairly regularly. It was an interesting procedure. You'd have to be sold as a slave to the person who was going to adopt you, and then they would, they would give you back to the person that sold, and then you'd have to do it again, and then they'd give you back. And then on the third time that you bought them as a slave, you could adopt them as your actual child. And that was it. At that point, they were fully, in every way, eyes of the law, eyes of society, your child. Full adoption into your family, full name change, everything was 100% your family. 
the, long, the natural father no longer had any authority over that person. Take a moment to expand upon the parallels in our mind of being adopted to God through Jesus Christ. We're adopted by God even though we have no claim or no right to be a member of God's family. We have no way to earn it. There's no social upward mobility to be into God's family except through Jesus Christ. We're adopted by someone that has the power to give us life. We're adopted far above our station. We're brought into full adoption into God's family. We become the continuation of God's family line. We're identified in every way through God and his family. We are entirely freed from our old identity in sin and death. And we are now disciplined by a loving father who wants what's best for us. We are adopted into Christ's family, into God's family through Christ. Grace and peace. So, this is it. Last point, we're going into it. That means you need a brain break because this is heavy stuff and there's a lot of it. And I admire you for being up for this. What is one piece of advice on any subject at all, serious or flippant, that's either stuck with you that were you were given, or that you find yourself giving to others again and again and again. One piece of advice. Doesn't have to be super serious, can be very lighthearted. And if you don't have any, maybe you will gain some useful advice. Talk amongst yourselves for a couple minutes, and then I want your best advice. Okay, is anyone willing to share the nugget of advice they've either been given that was useful? Or maybe not, maybe it's just funny. Uh, or the one thing that they love to give people advice on over and over and over again. I'm not going to volunteer you with this one because it's the kind of thing you can't just make up on the spot. Patrick, I'm going to give you the mic because I feel like wisdom deserves. Um, I've been trying to explain it to people around me and they're looking at me as if I'm mad. Um, <laughs> My, my mother, and it was kind of to do with housework, because we were sort of brought up by her, had this mantra, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And it, and it, it weighed very heavily on me as a child. And, and my brothers and sisters, you know, used to have to do all sorts of domestic things. And then later in life, I came across somebody whose mantra was, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Love that. Okay, show of hands. If a, if a housework job is worth doing, it's worth doing well, hands up. It's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> you can't have both hands up. <laughs> Depends on your mood, I suppose. Excellent. Well, yeah. You can choose, choose your own adventure in that adv advice section. Anyone else? Got a bit? I feel like Abby. Yeah, I just knew. You're, you're an advice giver. What was that? Also from my mum, and less seriously. She, my mum used to say a lot... Um, Always wear clean underwear just in case you get hit by a bus. Wow. I mean, it's good advice and also really dark. <laughs> uh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you for that. Hopefully, you've all just got great advice now. Um, this next section uh, and the last section, Ephesians. So, Ephesians 1, 1 to 2. That's the first section, the prologue. It's Paul wishing grace and peace. The last section we just looked at is Paul unpacking grace by way of worshiping God, by, worship, by way of saying, God, this is who you are. 
And again, when you're looking back, you're thinking about things that say in God, in Christ. You're thinking of looking for a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're thinking about that amazing sense of adoption. And you're promising yourself a conversation about predestination later in life. And then this section is Paul's intercession, his prayer going before God for the Ephesians that they might have the peace that comes from this grace. Again, there's, there's a great quote I'm just going to read out from Honer because it's better than anything I could have written. It says, The believers have every spiritual benefit for their spiritual welfare, including election, predestination, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, insight, understanding, knowledge of the mystery of his will, and sealing with the Holy Spirit. Paul's desire is for the Ephesian believers to deepen their relationship with the God who has enriched them with every spiritual benefit and to experience those benefits in a deeper way. There's three things that we're going to unpack briefly here. It's Paul's wish. It's his key piece of advice. It's his key piece of wisdom that he wants to communicate to us. I don't know if it's easy. I didn't ask you to do this. I don't know if it's easy to get verse 18 and 19 back up on the screen, Matt. I know you're a whiz technologically. But it's easy when you read this next stretch of scripture. Because actually one thing I didn't say, which I wasn't going to, but I'm going to now, is this next section is also one massive sentence. Ephesians chapter 1 is basically three sentences long. It's just super long sentences. So it's easy to lose the detail in this because it's such a big, massive, complex sentence of theology. But in verse 18, now thank you, what a ledge. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. It's easy to skip over that. He's saying, I want you to know something. One, the hope to which he has called you. Number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And number three, verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Three things Paul wants us to know. So we should probably just take a look, really. If he wants us to know them, be rude not to. The hope to which he has called you. In ancient Greek society, which much of the Roman culture was based on, hence Greco-Roman, the word hope is a really uh, similar word to our modern secular society. It's kind of a vague hope that things won't go quite so bad in the future. But there's no real guarantee of anything, of things improving, of things getting better. I've got a great Greco-Roman example from Plutarch, from the Parallel Lives. It was written probably, you know, early first century AD. And basically, I'm paraphrasing here, he writes about a thing that happens where Rome is going to, to war against the Gauls, and they just bury a man and a woman alive in the cattle market. Because hopefully, if we bury this man and woman alive in the cattle market, our war against the Gauls will go well. They have a kind of vague hope. Much of their religion and their, the pagan expression of the Greco-Roman religion was do this and this will happen, hopefully. Sacrifice this much and we'll have a good harvest. Bury these people alive in the marketplace, we'll have a good war. Throw this many pigs into the ocean, we'll have a good voyage, hopefully. And actually, a side note, that's why a lot of the early persecution of Christianity happened. As the Roman world became more Christian and things started to go wrong, the decline of the Roman Empire, they started to say, well, we had a good, pretty good balance beforehand. These Christians came along. Look what's happening. Anyway. Or 
a modern day example. This is one I came up with. Maybe you can come up with a better one. Hopefully, if I use a reusable coffee cup, my children's children might have an inhabitable planet to inherit. A vague hope, no guarantee, no guarantee. But the Old Testament understanding that Israel had and that the Jewish culture, which became, you know, part of the culture of Christianity, was that their hope was based on certainty. It's a certainty that they were God's chosen people. They might face persecution, but they know that God will bring them back to himself. A hope based on a past guarantee. A hope based on a covenant, a promise from God. Exodus 19. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. The Greco-Roman hope and the modern secular hope are subjective hopes. Hope for the moment that we're facing now. The Old Testament, New Testament, Christian hope and Jewish hope is a hope that is known is present. It is a certain hope. It is an objective hope. We do face, however, objective struggles. Subjective struggles, sorry. We do face the now challenge, but our hope should be based in the objective truth of who God is. That's what Paul wants. Grace is that objective truth. And the subjective hope comes from that. Two more things. You're doing really well. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wants us to know the hope and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I really got into the weeds in this one. Oh man, there's all kinds of really complicated Greek um, linguistic stuff that I'm not going to talk about. But it, one thing I will say is it really matters the order of the words here. Earlier, we talk about inheritance, right? But look at the order of these words. Look at them on the screen. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Whose inheritance? His. Thank you. His inheritance. God's inheritance. You are God's inheritance. He chose you. He redeemed you. He adopted you. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. You are his inheritance. And God views you as riches. God views you as riches through God's grace in Christ Jesus. Come on. Isn't that amazing? I know it's late, but that's amazing. You are riches. Imagine if you went forth from this place tonight knowing that God chose you and sees you as riches, how your life would change. Maybe just a tiny bit, maybe a big bit. And the word for riches here in the Greek is plutos. And actually in some translations it's translated as wealth. I think sometimes actually that might be better because riches has this kind of granularity, plurality to it. And I, if, if on a good day I might be able to see myself as riches, maybe I could be like, well, the good stuff of me, the stuff that's actually just reflecting God, that's riches, but all the rest is garbage. That can't be God's inheritance. No, wealth is singular. All of you is the glorious inheritance of God. And he looks forward to the day he gets to see you face to face and take hold of his inheritance bought by the blood of Christ from grace to peace. Last one. Paul wants us to know stuff. We might as well know it. His incomparably great power for us who believe. 
is incomparably great power for us that believe. And this one is the longest section in this scripture, but I'm going to give it the least amount of detail. Paul uses lots of words that mean strength here. And lots of scholars have unpacked it and tried to be like, well, this is how God expresses the strength, and this is the inherent strength of God, and this is the outworking of strength of God. But actually, I think what Paul's trying to do here is just emphasize by repeating, God is able. God is able. Ephesians 3.20, later we'll get to it next few weeks. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. He's able to do immeasurably more according to his power that is at work within us. Paul prays that we may know hope. A hope that's based on an objective source. Paul prays that we may know our worth in God's eyes, that you are God's wealth, his inheritance, his riches. Paul prays that we may know God's power that's available to us, can bring all things together into completion, into wholeness in Christ, grace and peace. That was a lot. You did amazing. We're stopping. Next week we'll do less. Honestly, got to lay the foundations. Let me quickly pray while Philippa comes up. Father, we thank you that you are in this place. We thank you that we get to wrestle with your word. Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us. That you'd fill us afresh by your Holy Spirit. That you'd help us to take something out of this incredibly rich and dense piece of scripture, but it's such a blessing to us. I also pray that you would give us all boldness to be able to say, I do not understand, and I would like to talk about that. And that we would be able to support each other in exploring together. We just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.